0: Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this novel, we'll be finishing our look at Israel Potter, uh, His 50 Years of Exile by Herman Melville. Melville wrote this novel in 1855. It was presented to the publishers. It's a very conventional novel. Uh, Melville was trying to get his writing career back on track after the commercial and uh, kind of a Critical failure of Pierre, and even uh, and Moby Dick before that, and other disappointments such as Mardi. So, he's trying to get his career back, you know, to, to, you know, to, to the prof, you know, at least a writing career to a place where he, you know he might be able to stay on as a writer. Uh, of course, Melville's not going to have much time left in his his writing career. His last novel, The Confidence Man, would be published uh, just a few years later, and that would that'd be the end of his his writing career, he would, he would still write a little bit, but uh, and some of that stuff would appear posthumously, but but that's it. But this was more of a commercial success than you know Pierre certainly was, and he you know was published both in England and, and Britain uh, to some success. Um, and I was talked about in the first our first episode on Israel Potter. It very much is a novel of an adventurous story of the American Revolution. It's very much tapping into American patriotism in the context of American democracy and you know without getting too much into this as America moved into more democratic politics um, you know to the degree they were a democratic society I think we can certainly uh, question you know obviously you had slavery and, and women and they always have rights to property and, and they couldn't vote things like that but you know politically it's for white men You know, you had this kind of shift to towards more democratic politics in the era of Jackson. Um, And along with that came all this celebration of of kind of Revolutionary War memorials and Revolutionary War heroes. Uh, The Fourth of July gets celebrated a lot more and you have kind of the uplifting of these iconic figures of the American Revolution right you want to think that that comes right out of the american revolution and certainly those figures were known and there was history writing of the american revolution in the 1780s 1790s but it's really later that you get these kind of iconic mythologies of washington and franklin and john paul jones and ethan allen and these figures Uh, so melville's really tapping into that and you can really tell he's trying to do a commercial failure he he really closes the lid on some of his philosophy and his social critique. Um, now you can kind of read the whole thing as a satire and say he's still <coughs> sorry, excuse me that he's still kind of sticking it to uh, to America and American hypocrisy the way he's done in other works. He, he, there are themes of class here but so much of it's set in England it, it can't really be a direct criticism of of the United States. And This gives him a little bit more freedom to, to talk about things like class a little bit and and alienation through the character Israel Potter, you know, while he's in England. Something I didn't mention too much last time, which of course is kind of obvious if you read it, is, is the name Israel, Israel Potter. Uh, the, he's a wanderer, he wanders for 50 years or 40 years in England after the American Revolution. So you have a, a man with a Jewish name, you know, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before getting back to the Promised Land. Right? And a lot of the chapters' titles are drawn actually from, <coughs> from you know, kind of mythology, Jewish mythology, uh, especially in the second half. You have a chapter called, for instance, Israel in, Israel in Egypt. Obviously, he's not literally in Egypt, the character never goes to Egypt. If you just look through the chapters, you may think he's going to go there because the chapter is literally just called Israel in Egypt. But in fact, this is just a metaphor, right? Um, and there's a lot of other examples, like Samson shows up as a metaphor. So you kind of got the theme of the wandering Jew here is what I'm trying to get at. Um, now, Israel Potter is not a Jewish um, character. There's no evidence of that. But the, the, the kind of the thematic of, 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 of a person losing his homeland, forced to kind of wander the wilderness, wander the world before returning uh, someday is there in the story. It's pretty obvious to see. Now that said, Melville didn't come up with this name himself, or even the whole story. Uh, Melville based this novel on an on, um, on actually a biography of a of an of, of an American war hero or veteran, a Revolutionary War veteran called the the book was called the Life and Remarkable Adventures of Israel R. Potter. Um, now apparently Melville only really follows this for the first few chapters and then by you know the first quarter of the book he kind of goes off and does his own thing with it but he's drawing kind of this from this this actual figure who, who had a documented life right and he's going to do this uh, a little bit well lot in his stories we're going to be looking at his stories next at least some of them the Piazza tales and in those he often is, is drawing stuff from newspaper accounts and and uh, for instance, one of his most famous novellas, right? It really is a novel, essentially. Um, Benito Sereno, although it's presented as a short story in a collection. You know, this is based on one chapter of, of is it, yeah, Masa Delano's account of his journeys in the Pacific or something. Or, or maybe it was the Atlantic. I don't know. I, th- I think he was mostly in the Pacific, that book, but you know, this running into a slave ship. That's something that was really in a historical account. And Israel Potter is kind of drawn from that. But after you get through the first few chapters, you know, Melville really does heavily fictionalize the story for his own purposes. So the name isn't something he invented. He was kind of gifted this this, um, this name, Israel, which he uses. He exploits it in telling the story of, of, the, of the wanderer who loses his homeland. I'm not going to dwell too much on... On the actual plot of the second half of the novel because there's really not much to say the novel is called his 50 years of exile we don't see most of that those 50 years most of the actual events of the novel are set during the American Revolution itself it's presented as a, a revolutionary war biography almost so the 50 years that fallow are kind of boring right they're not that interesting to the readers who are coming to this for an adventure tale where we get to meet it's a, not only Adventure It's an Adventure Tales in which we get to meet the great heroes like Ben Franklin and John Paul Jones are the most notable ones. But there's even a moment where he meets George III. I talked about that last time. And he meets Ethan Allen um, in, in this period. Now, I don't quite know when these people become iconic exactly in American popular culture. Um, but I'm pretty sure, I'm confident that this was a process that was t- coupled in some way to, to American democracy and this, this kind of more patriotic culture that emerges in, in this era of democracy. So anyways, uh, chapter 14 is where we left off, well chapter 13 is where we stopped. And, and what happened, well, where we left Israel Potter is he was uh, being impressed into the British uh, Navy. He had uh, first been captured uh, after fighting the Battle of Bunker Hill. He was captured, brought over to England. He escapes being a POW, who wanders the countryside for a while even working for a season on George III's kind of country estate he eventually meets up with some uh, simp- some sympathizers of the american cause who kind of bounce him back and forth between france and england as a spy carrying messages to dr ben franklin in in paris so we get a really nice vignette of the of of the imagery of, of ben franklin who's presented kind of as good Richard, always giving advice, but also presented as not fully particular interested in the politics of, of the American Revolution. We don't see him talk much about that. and ostensibly he's there to carry a message, but we don't really hear much about what this message is or what it's supposed to do. Um, uh, while, he's, while he's in Paris, he meets John Paul Jones and they have a, they spend some time together. He goes back to England. Uh, he finds his contact there died and shortly after that, um, and he's forced to wander. Again, he gets captured by the British, and this time not as an American POW, but as just a normal merchant seaman who's being uh, sent off to be uh, impressed into the Navy, right? So that's where we leave off. And then we get a series of chapters, really it's chapters 14 through 19, which are all basically a little, a little short story of sea fiction. Um, so Israel Potter starts out working for the British, Uh, Now, these kind of impressed crews tended to be quite diverse. And, you know, his loyalty, the fact that he's not loyal to the British doesn't really matter. And it's even addressed in the novel that this personal loyalty doesn't matter that much in in a context where all these crews are just dragged up from wherever the British could get sailors. But his ship is attacked by an American raider, American fighting ship. Warship, uh, that's the word I'm looking for, a warship. And who's the commander of this warship? None other than John Paul Jones, who takes these Americans from the crew onto his own ship and has them serve on, on them. Israel Potter goes with them. And at first, uh, John Paul Jones doesn't recognize Israel Potter, but Israel Potter is able to you know, remind him. And once they re, are reacquainted, Israel Potter then is appointed quartermaster of, of the ship. And that's his, that's his job. So over the next few chapters, they go on various adventures, culminating in a a huge firefight between John Paul Jones' ship and a British ship, the Serapis. And this is where John Paul Jones gives his famous line when he's asked to surrender. He says, I have not yet begun to fight, and that's dramatized in, in the story. So that's all that really happens. There, there's some kind of exciting set pieces in this section, but it all involves kind of Israel Potter hanging around with John Paul Jones and his crew in a ship, you know, doing their raiding and, you know, you know pushing the American cause of independence at, the, at sea. Now, this follows history pretty closely. Um, the, 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 this, the, the reply to the British call to surrender uh, i i've not just I' have not yet begun to fight is apparently historical. What happens in the battle and this is all dramatized in the in the story is he crashes it into the he crashes his ship the richard boneman bone home Richard into the Serapis and then they fight it out and eventually the the Serapis is captured by the Americans while John paul Jones's ship sinks and so he's able to then steal to take this ship as a trophy and and takes it back to To America right now in all this Melville sits on his hands with his views about all this you know we saw in like Pierre and Moby Dick just how much Melville liked to comment on the the state of the world on things how nosy I guess the narrator is in those stories of course in the case of Moby Dick it makes sense because it is a character who's observing these events Uh, in Pierre it's a really done in a bizarre way where you'll literally have things happening You'll have the narrator recording like Pierre's mind and thoughts and then the narrator will then kind of comment on it directly to the reader Um, so we don't get much of it here in fact all we really get is a little sentence a few sentences at the end of chapter 19 where Melville writes this the loss of life in the two ships was about equal one half of the total number of those engaged either being killed or wounded In view of this battle, one may well ask, what separates the enlightened man from the savage? Is civilization a thing distinct, or is it an advanced stage of barbarism? That's it. Now compare that to the pages and pages of commentary on military service, on man of wars, in White Jacket, right, where most of that novel is a criticism of life in a man of war and the condition of sailors and the treatment of sailors. Very little of that in this the story all and you really see it's kind of sad almost that you know maybe what melville could have done with this story of israel potter maybe what he wanted to do would have been much more we just get glimpses here and there of him kind of peeking through with his with his more profound social criticism he's going to get that in his stories his stories which were much more successful than these novels were much more popular you know, do that very well, actually. And it, it's kind of an irony, I think, of Melville's career that he tried so hard to be a novelist. And, you know, he never found much success as a novelist. But as a short story writer, you know, he got a little bit more fame and, and recognition. But that's not what he, you know, really was trying to do for most of his career. It was kind of a fallback position for him. So, but it's, it becomes a form in which he's able to be a little bit more political than he was able to do as a successful novelist, anyways. Um, not that he was successful, but his glimpses of successes were in more conventional storytelling, right? Not the really deep philosophical stuff like Pierre and Moby Dick. But what I almost want to tell them is like Taipei was not an OMU and White Jacket and Redburn were very political, right? I talked about those in this podcast in previous episodes. You know, Redburn really talks about the. The flows of labor and commodities in emerging capitalism. White Jacket is about the oppression of sailors at the sea. Uh, Taipei and Oumu are about empire and the tragedy of empire in the Pacific. These are not novels that are that are apolitical. They're not just jingoistic patriotic texts. They they had their popularity despite being political. The problem was, I think, when Melville tried to you know present to the public what he you know things like Pierre which really the public wasn't ready for or able to handle, right? I don't think Pierre would be any more successful today than it was in Melville's um, own time. So chapter 20 uh, is called The Shuttle. And what literally happens here is Israel Potter is, is bumped back into, into British hands. And, and we've got another set of chapters, uh, chapter 20, 21, 22, which are mostly about Israel Potter getting captured by the British, or at least being taken in by the British, forced to again serve on a on a British ship and and make his way, you know, among the British. He's just kind of bouncing back and forth between different loyalties. We see this we get the sense that Israel Potter really has very little autonomy, very little uh, freedom for, for himself. Despite his sacrifices and his service to the nation, he really doesn't get anything to show for it. no no rest or recognition. He just becomes a plaything for these larger forces. And I, I guess there's some politics in in that Portrayal of, of Potter. Oh, I forgot to mention chapter twenty one. It's Samson among the Philistines. We get another biblical reference here. Um, you know, he meets Ethan Allen, right? So another, so he meets another great character. This is like I think the fourth major historical figure that Israel Potter runs into in the short novel. It was Ben Franklin, John Paul Jones, George the Third, and and then Ethan Allen is the last one. And of course, Ethan Allen was. You know, very important to Vermont history, very important in American revolutionary history and that, you know, part of New York and the Hudson Valley. So he's most famous for the Green Mountain Boys. So the Green Mountain Boys were a kind of a militia group in kind of in this Vermont region, right? Remember, Vermont wasn't one of the initial 13 colonies, right? It was a later state that emerged partially because of, of these acti- the actions of the Green Mountain Boys and Ethan Allen right so they there was a lot of these kind of militia groups in the 1750s and especially the 1760s like the regulators in North Carolina and you know these different militias and it's all a very complicated history and kind of interesting uh, as well um, but this one the one in this region that would become Vermont was was were the the Green Mountain boys and you know Ethan Allen was the most important kind of leader of this this group. Now, their most notable achievement during the American Revolution was in 1775, right when fighting began. He captured Fort Ticonderoga and later on was part of the invasion of Canada, the failed invasion of Canada. Um, So it's in 1777 that they break away and form their own state, right? And they, they actually operate as the Vermont Republic until 1791 when they become the they become a state in in the United States. So that's the story of Vermont and and Ethan Allen is another one of these kind of Revolutionary War heroes that, that's very really kind of a fun person to meet, right? Like Ben Franklin is in his own way a fascinating figure, you know, this kind of bawdy guy, but intellectual and you know, famous for poor Richards Almanac, right? A globe trotter sophisticated, but also, you know, having his earthy side. John Paul Jones and Ethan Allen are, are more kind of macho jock type figures. Right, but also very commanding personalities that really attract the loyalty of, of the people that they, they lead. In fact, uh, Melville decides to try to summarize the character of Ethan Allen as such. Quote, Allen seems to have been a curious combination of a Hercules, a Joe Miller, a Baynard, and a Tom Hyder, had a person like a Belgian giant, mus- mountain music in him like a Swiss, a heart plump as a Cour de Leon. Though born in New England, he exhibited no traces of her character. He was frank, buff, Bluff, compatible as a pagan, convinical, a Roman, hardy as a harvest. His spirit was essentially Western, and herein is his peculiar Americanism. For the Western spirit is, or will yet be, for no other is and can be the true American one. And, um, yeah, we actually get a little chapter just called Something Further of Ethan Allen. For about four or five pages, we get this expose of the of the character of Ethan Allen. Um, but he's just another person that, that Israel Potter bumps into in his journey. So now he's in London after having served again on the British Navy. And, and when we get to chapter 23 called Israel in Egypt, um, obviously the, the title I don't know we need to comment on, right? Israel in Egypt is of course a stage in Jewish mythological history. It's all in the Bible where the, the nation of Israel, right, is in, in Egypt prior to the Exodus. Here it's You know, we got Israel Potter in, not Egypt necessarily, but a metaphoric Egypt of sorts, working, slaving away in London, right? And he works as what? Well, to make the metaphor complete, he works as a bricklayer, a brickmaker anyways. And he spends a bunch of time, you know, I think like a half a year or something working in these kilns making bricks really with nothing on his back but his rags we really get a, a, an image into the, the depths of poverty that were faced by many British people we're reminded of course of Redburn where we, we had Melville talking about poverty of, of Britain and the early industrial era this is set even earlier of course but we get uh, an image of just the misery of Israel Potter oh it's 13 weeks 13 weeks long he, he worked um, essentially as a slave, or at least in slave-like conditions, for you know for these for the British. Quote, "Sometimes the air was harsh and bleak. the ridged and modded sky looked scourged, or cramping fog set in from sea for leagues around it, ferreting out each rheumatic heartbone and racking it. The sciatic limpers shivered, their anguished rags sponged up the mists. No shelter though it hailed. The sheds were for the bricks, unless, indeed, according to the phrase, every man was a brick, which in sober scripture was the case. Brick is no bad name for any son of Adam. Eden was but a brickyard, where the mortal but a few luckless shovels of clay molded on a a mold, laid on a sheet to dry, and air long quickened into his queer caprices by the sun. Are not men built into communities just like bricks into a wall? Consider the Great Wall of China. Ponder the great populace of Peking, As man serves bricks, so God him, building upon him by billions into the edifices of the purpose. Man attains not to the nobility of a brick unless taken by the aggregate. Yet in there a difference in bricks, whether quick or dead, which, for at last we shall now see. And then we get a description of the work they suffer in. But I just mention this because this is the Melville we, we we've known and loved of, from you know, Redburn and White Jacket, Moby Dick. You know, this one that really is on to this issue of, of human misery and, and the misery of institutions and hierarchies and, and all that. So that's chapter 23, um, Israel and Egypt, all about him working in these kilns as a brick brickmaker. So that's it. He eventually saved up enough money to improve his wardrobe, but he continues to wander around England for 40 years. So it's not until 1826 half a century later, that he's able to get back to America. I don't know why it takes him so long. I don't think it's ever fully explained in these chapters why it takes him so long. He just never gets a chance to go back to America. But he finally does, you know, gets back to his, his promised land to America, the, the nation he fought for, the nation he sacrificed his life for. Um, and what is he gonna find there? Well, let's. Um, well, 1826, is this an important date in American history? Well, I can think of at least one way that this date is remembered in American history as kind of a turning point, at the, kind of the handing of the baton from the revolutionary generation to, I guess, what do we call it, the democratic, the Jacksonian democratic era. So, 1826 is the year that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both died, right? So, those, those are kind of like the last of that. that that generation of revolutionaries, right? Jefferson was still a relatively young man when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. So, you know, he had a lot of life after him, after the revolution began. But kind of that, the passing of that revolutionary generation, right, to a new, to a generation of people who grew up in the American Republic, I think is partially the significance of 26. I don't know if Neville was thinking about that directly, but it's, it, it is the date that, that Jefferson and Adams died and they died of course famously within a within a day of each other in different parts of the country Both on July 4th uh, So chapter 26 Requis, uh, Requiscant in Pace. And so this is Just what he sees when he goes back Right, He goes back and he sees like the Bunker Hill memorial the one that's referenced early on in the opening pages of the book He sees his old farmer's father's homestead, which has been burned down. Uh, Basically, the whole neighborhood, the whole region has been transformed and destroyed. Uh, He has a conversation with a young whippersnapper who doesn't remember the the American Revolution about the past. And he's he's kind of indifferent to that old ancient history um, that this old man is carrying with him. He's even forgotten by the, the American nation. The final paragraph of the, of the book is, he was repulsed in efforts after a pension by certain caprices of law. His scars proved his only medals. He dictated a little book, a record of his fortunes. But long ago, it faded out of print, himself out of meaning, his name out of memory. He died the same day as the oldest oak of the native hills was blown down. So that's it. So it's kind of a bittersweet ending. He dies not long after returning to his homeland but he's not really welcomed. the land has changed what he fought for is no longer there and and you know that's the sacri- that's what he sacrificed for for America but um you know it's drawn from life this this person of uh, you know really existed let's, let's see if I can find out the real story of Israel Potter and there's a little entry in wikipedia under the book Israel Potter the one we're looking at Israel Potter was a real person born in Cranston, Rhode Island. According to his own account, a memoir titled The Life and Remarkable Adventures of Israel R. Potter, he had been a veteran of the Battle of Bunker Hill, a sailor in the Revolutionary Navy, Navy a prisoner in the British, an escapee in England, a secret agent and courier in France, and a 45 year exile from native land as a laborer, pauper, and peddler in London. Melville's pot combines a number of Potter's actual encounters King George III, Horne Took, and Ben Franklin, with some he never had, such as Ethan Allen and John Paul Jones. So that's it. So this is this is drawn from life. So this really happens. There's um, someone who actually experienced some kind of, some of these emotions, right, of, of kind of loss and change. And, and I think, I guess, that's the major theme of the novel, right, is, you know, given enough time, you know, these worlds do change, and with them go maybe certain values, and maybe with them go um, kind of with them go a remembrance of these common participants in it, right? It's, it's, you know, and I think where we can kind of dig some deeper meaning out of this book is the fact that the people that Potter runs into are going to be remembered, right? George III will be remembered. So will Um, John Paul Jones and Ben Franklin. These people do become heroic, right? And and that's something that happens with nationalisms, right? Any kind of revolutionary movement or, National independence movement, you know, you're going to have figures who get become the heroes and you're going to have many people who get left behind in that narrative. And like I think so much of Melville's work, this is a celebration of working people and the common man against institutions. And we literally see Israel Potter being bounced around by institutions, some on his side, but, you know, he's basically being used. He's being used by the as the spy courier network. He's being used by the British Navy. He's being used even by... The, the American Navy, he doesn't get his pension at the end, so he's not even, like, late in his life, gets any com- he doesn't get any comfort for his service. So it's about someone being betrayed by the institution that, that he, he serves, and this is such a common theme of, of Melville's writing, especially so much of his sea fiction. Now, there's just one more thing I, I want to say about this. And, of course, in Pierre, we, we have that subtitled, The Ambiguities. And in that novel, we have a character who's who, who kind of changes his identity and his perspective and his, his role over over time. Um, here we have a much more mundane look at that, but we actually have Israel Potter wearing many different masks throughout his life. Right, He wears the mask of the American patriot, and early on it's hard for him to take it off. Right, He actually... Even when talking to the king, he can't stop being an American patriot deep down, right? Over time, though, he learns to wear this mask better and more effectively uh, to, to change the clothes, right? There's even a scene where he, he changes clothes with a ditch digger. This is early in the novel, but he doesn't change it well enough. He still gets identified as a sailor. But later on, he's able to, to wear these different clothings a little bit more effectively. So he survives his four-year exile by being an expert uh, mask wearer. um, And I think that's kind of an interesting aspect of of the novel. And, you know, I think it, you know, to some degree, our identity is the mask we wear, right? Our habits, our training, but also the mask we wear, right? Like, so someone can be a a father at some points of the day, a teacher at other parts of the day, maybe a boss in another context. And, you know, these these relationships and these identities we have are, are fairly fluid, right? And some of it is is perhaps a true confusion about who we are. But I think some of it is just we get really good at wearing masks. And we get we know when we have to put on a performance, right, even if it's with even if it's in these kind of more intimate areas of life. Right. Whether it's being a father or a spouse or a son. Right. You know, we, we when we call our parents, right, we, we we present ourselves a certain way that we wouldn't necessarily do to maybe other people. Right. So this kind of shifting uh, identity is, I think, an important aspect of, of kind of modernist literature. And I, and I don't want to say that Israel Potter is a precursor of, of that kind of storytelling, but uh, it's it's hard to not see it. It's, not, it's hard not to see the, the flipping of masks that's going on constantly in the story. And I guess the other reason someone might like this novel is just it's a novel about mobility. It's a novel and part of the sea by, of the sea part and, and war at sea. If, if you were bored in white jacket because there was no fighting, well, you get that fighting in this novel. So you can look at it there. It's, it's, it's a good adventure story, I suppose. It's, you know, there's worse ones, to be sure. Um, but it's not totally aloof from politics. It, it, there are things that Melville's trying to say, despite it does feel that his hands are kind of tied by what the publishers want and what he himself is trying to make out of his career at this point in his, in his life. So anyways, that's what I want to say about Israel Potter. It's certainly one, if you're reading through Melville's work, that if you skip it, it's not going to be the end of the world. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't take us very long to read Israel Potter. So it might be worth just glancing at it or even just skimming it to get a sense of what this story is, is about. Um, so coming up, we're going to next look at the Piazza Tales, and I'll do that over two, two episodes. So the first one will be a little bit more weighty. We're going to look at uh, the Piazza and then... Barnaby the Scrivener and then Benito Sereno. Now Benito Sereno itself is almost 100 pages. It's like literally a little novel. But um, you know Barnaby the Scrivener is a little bit shorter in the Piazza. I think totally it's like 130 pages or so for those three tales. And then in the episode following that we'll look at the last three of the Piazza tales. And And then I have two options. Either I can go just the, the next thing in the book, in the volume, the Library of America's third volume of Melville's writing, then is, is a confidence man, right? Because that's that's how they edited it. That's his final novel published during his lifetime. So I can do that, or maybe I'll, I'll I'll jump ahead and do all the stories, the other the stories that weren't collected in his lifetime. So the Piazza Tale was his collection of fiction that came out, um, but he published I think about a dozen short stories, all in like 54, 55, in that period between Pierre and. You know, in in this novel, Israel Potter, he was doing a lot of magazine writing. And some of his greatest works come out of this period, like Tartarus of Maids, Paradise of Bachelors, Tartarus of Maids is the full name of it. Certainly Barnaby the Scrivener. So I'm considering maybe just going through all the short stories and then coming back to do The Confidence Man and then Billy Budd at the end of the at the end of the series. So I haven't yet decided, but at the very least, we'll be looking at the Piazza Tales next. So um, I look forward to that. So re- re-read uh, the Piazza, which is just kind of a vignette that sets up the, the stories. Read Barnaby the Scribner and, and Benito Serrano. I just heard news by the way that Benito Sereno is, is going to be produced as like a sci-fi series. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be on the sci-fi channel or Netflix or something, but that's uh, kind of interesting. I, I think Marty would be a better story to adapt as a science fiction novel. If I would like to. S- I could see that happening, and that makes more sense to me. Uh, is doing kind of what Marty's done with in a sci-fi setting. I think it would work better. I, I know the Pacific setting might be hard to manage, but a sci-fi one with so much sci-fi on TV coming out, you know, maybe a loosely adapted Marty could could work there. I don't know what they're going to do. It sounds like it's gonna be like slavers, you know, alien slavers instead of others. I don't know why, it's kind of, sounds like whitewashing to me actually. So I don't know why you would want to downplay the the role of race-based slavery in this story because it's so central to it. But nonetheless, that's coming out. So at least I, I heard rumors about that. So maybe we'll be able to talk about that in the future. So that's it. Um, I. Um, as always, uh, I really appreciate you listening. If you have your own thoughts about Israel Potter, please leave them below or send me an email at 100 at gmail.com. And I look forward to sharing my thoughts about Barnaby, the Scrivener, and, and Benito Serrano with you next time. Thanks, as always, for listening.